you have a Bible, you're going to need it today. I'd like you to go to Luke chapter 11 again. We're going to wrap up our time with Jesus answering the question, can you, will you teach us to pray? Today is the ninth week that we've spent in what was originally a five-week series on prayer, so that's fun. Uh, It's been good to go deep with you guys. It's been good for us to slow down a little bit and try to really interact with some of the questions that you've been asking and be a little bit more practical, I think, in where our minds and hearts need to be if prayer is going to be effective. Um, Today, what we want to do is we want to finish what we've been working on for the last two weeks. So yes, we have eight weeks prior to today that matter and that are all kind of interconnected with what we're doing this morning. But specifically, the last two weeks and today, we've been working through four what I called fundamentals of prayer. I told you last week a story about how I was no good at basketball because I didn't have any fundamentals. The week before that, we kind of dove into the challenges that face us when it comes to prayer that I would argue it's never been harder for people to pray than it is right now, to make time, to find time, because we've lost all of our margin and the moments that used to be just sort of empty and meaningless and purposeless where we could fill those times up with prayer. Now, because we all live online, we just scroll. We just scroll and scroll and scroll to the tune of several hundred times a day of interacting with the internet, which isn't bad, but it's replaced the opportunities that we used to have for our minds to drift and to to rest on Christ. So we'll be back in Luke 11 again today. We're gonna read what we've been reading for the last three weeks. So we'll read verses one through four, give you some context, and then we're gonna do a little review and jump into where we're gonna go today. So Luke chapter 11, verse one. Luke recalls it going something like this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he stopped praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us just as John, the the, the baptizer, taught his disciples to pray. And so Jesus said to them, verse two, when you pray, say, Father, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come, verse three. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. So as we've worked through these four fundamentals of prayer, we started out with number one, right, which makes sense, and that was this, that based on Jesus' instruction in Luke 11, the first fundamental of prayer is that God is your Father. God is your Father. Uh, You guys have heard me say a lot about these fundamentals the last few weeks, so I thought it'd be fun maybe to let you hear from some different thinkers and followers of Jesus from church history, so I have a few quotes I want to share with you for this first fundamental. Here's J.I. Packer on God as our Father. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his Father. From J.I. Packer's perspective, and I would say mine as well, God as your Father is really the core central fundamental truth that you have to grasp if Christianity is ever going to be anything more than an empty religious point-scoring system that may or may not get you into heaven someday. And I would argue that that's a poor definition of what Jesus was trying to teach. It's not what he had in mind, and it doesn't really work, if we can be honest with each other. What does work, what is effective, is to know God as our Father. The second fundamental builds on the first fundamental. God is your Father, and your Father is within your reach. Johannes Eckhart, also known as Meister Eckhart, a 13th century German theologian, once wrote this. He said, I am as sure as I live that nothing is so near to me as God. God is nearer to me than I am to myself. My existence depends on the nearness and presence of God. He is also near things of wood and stone, so he's talking about inanimate objects here, but they know it not. 
If a piece of wood became as aware of the nearness of God, he's being facetious here, as an archangel is, then the piece of wood would be as happy as an archangel. For this reason, man is happier than the inanimate wood because he knows and understands how God is near him. His happiness increases and diminishes in proportion to the increase and diminution or diminishing in his knowledge of this. His happiness does not arise from this, that God is near him and in him and that he possesses God, but from this, that he knows the nearness of God. I hope you can see the dichotomy that Meister Eckhart's holding up. It's not just the facts themselves, it's your awareness. It's your understanding, according to Jesus, not just that God could be a father, possibly somewhere out there for somebody, but that he's your father and that you know that, that he knows the nearness of God and loves him and is aware that the kingdom of God is near. It's very good news for us that God is close by because we need proximity to our Father in order to become like our Father. Jesus says that our Father is within our reach. Last week, we talked about the third fundamental of prayer from Jesus' explanation here in Luke chapter 11. We said that cherishing your Father is the point. It's the point of prayer. I told you that the word that Jesus used uh, hagiadzo, that we translate as either honored or hallowed, is better understood in our context to mean cherished. Honored and hallowed fail us in modern English because they are cold and formal and they're kind of distant concepts that are more duty-bound or made, maybe derived of obligation instead of connected to love and relationship. Cherishing has three basic parts. It includes joy, it includes gratitude, and it includes Worship, And if you'd like to dive into those definitions a little bit further, you can go back and listen to last week's teaching. But for the sake of time, we'll move on. Here again is another quote, this time from Tim Keller, an author, theologian, and pastor. He uses uh, prayer as sort of a vehicle to understand how we can love and know God. I think the things he says are going to seem familiar to you, even if you've never heard this before. He says, to hallow God's name, so he uses the old school word, is to have a heart of grateful joy toward God, and even more, a wondrous sense of his beauty. Consider how different this is from the normal way that we use prayer to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes and happiness reside in things, as in how successful we are in our social relationships. We therefore pray, pray mainly when our career or finances are in trouble, or when some heart treasures seem, excuse me, or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy for us. When life is going smoothly, and our truest heart treasures seem safe, it does not occur to us to pray. Seldom or never do we spend sustained time adoring and praising God. We know God is there, but we tend to see him as a means through which we get things that make us happy. For most of us, he has not become our happiness. And maybe it's just Tim and I in this boat. I don't know, but I would be willing to bet that for many of us, this is true, that we know how to treat prayer like a mechanism. We've almost never experienced it as a side effect of a relationship that already exists. We sort of pick the phone up to call God. We make enough small talk to feel like we've done our due diligence so we can start asking for all the stuff we want. And then as soon as we're done talking, we hang up. We don't listen. We don't wait. We don't really care. There's no sense of joy. We're not grateful for that much stuff. And it isn't a worshipful experience. It could be. Tim Keller would argue that it has to be. Jesus seems to expect that to be the objective that we're working toward, the point when we approach our Father who is very near to us. God becoming your happiness, to use Tim Keller's language, this is the point of prayer. As your loving Heavenly Father who is within your reach, we have to believe and accept that that's reality. So that brings us finally to our fourth fundamental of prayer. And if you've been taking notes the last three weeks, this would be a great time to write this down 
maybe the other three as well. If you haven't been here, that's up to you. But these are helpful tools, and I would argue that these would be very effective if you would try to keep them before your mind and before your heart any time that you enter into prayer with God. The fourth and final fundamental of prayer is that your Father has willingly opened himself to your influence. Look back with me, if you would, at Luke chapter 11, verse 2. Luke eleven two. your Bible's open, hopefully. If it's not, I'll just read it to you again. Jesus says in verse 2 that uh, when you pray, you should start with Father. That's where we get the idea that God is your Father. Uh, that your Father's in heaven, which is included in Matthew's version of this prayer, that he's nearby. That we should ask his kingdom to come. We should ask for his will to be done in, in the longer versions of this prayer. Uh, and that his name would be honored. It's that last statement that he makes in verse 2. May your, may your kingdom come, and you could argue may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's included in Matthew's version of the prayer. That's him teaching us introducing, us, introducing us to the idea that God wants us to participate in his kingdom coming. That there is actually a plan for you and I to be part of how the kingdom of God comes to the earth. Jesus is saying that our prayers are one of the ways that God's kingdom comes. Now it would be easy for us, I think, to read this almost in the opposite way. Logically, you might look at these verses and think to yourself, no, what Jesus is saying is that God's kingdom is going to come no matter what, so I better just pray it in order to get my heart right so that I'm prepared when it finally happens. But that's not what he says. He says each time that you lift up your heart to communicate with God, the eternal living God, ask him to send his kingdom. And then ask him again to send his kingdom. And then ask him again to send his kingdom, to expand the borders of where his effective will is lived out in real practice. That's our understanding of the kingdom of God. I wonder if that strikes you in a way that's a little bit odd, if that's a new idea. In my experience with Christians who pray, I don't think many of us actually believe that this is the case, that by praying, we actually involve ourselves in changing the world, the universe, the fabric of Reality. Now, I'm not here to pick on or attack God's sovereignty. One of the beautiful things about Christianity is that we are always having to hold two ideas that seem like they conflict. We have to hold them in tension together. We talked about this a little bit last week as well. One of those concepts that's in tension is that God is sovereign and prayer does work. And we can't make that make sense. That feels like adding two and two and getting nine. We're like, eh, that's not how the numbers go. But the Bible teaches that both things are true. And so we have to try to find a way to hold those things in our hearts and in our minds so that we agree with God when he tells us that those things are true, that we believe that that's true, and we operate and live as if it is. For many of us that have grown up in church, who spent a lot of years in church pews, in Sunday school classes, maybe in youth groups and Bible studies, it's a little bit strange to hear someone say, with as much certainty as I'm saying to you today, that the kingdom of God will come because we have asked God to send it here. Wouldn't it feel more familiar, maybe, based on our experience? Maybe no one's ever said this to you explicitly, but wouldn't it feel a little more familiar if Jesus had said, the kingdom will come about, not by your prayers, but by your hard work and your sacrifice. The kingdom will come because you'll be evangelistic. The kingdom will come because you'll plant enough churches. The kingdom will come because preachers will preach and teachers will teach and missionaries will go to the ends of the earth. Those are all good things. But Jesus seems to think that the arrival of the kingdom of God begins with is mobilized by the prayers of people who approach God as Father, God who is close by and who cherish him. It makes a lot of sense if you start considering the passages in the New Testament where Jesus speaks about love. He seems to think that love is the, the most effective billboard that any church could ever put up on the side of the road to attract people to himself and to the life of the church. Not effective teaching ministries, not political perspectives, not cultural stands on this or that issue, but genuine love for one another. The thing that we're usually most 
fast, most quick to dismiss, to get rid of when we get stressed out or people start to get in our way or we have conflict with others in the church. We kind of flush the love first and we stand on the principles of the doctrine and theology. And unfortunately, we might be saying things that Jesus did say, but we're saying them so differently and we're living lives that are so separate from his that they don't actually lead anybody to him. That's the trouble of all of this kind of world that we've built for ourselves in the evangelical West is we've given ourselves permission to fight with one another when Jesus seems to think that love is the way forward. And that love is not just love for one another, it's love for God, our Father, that leads us to bring real requests before him because we believe that something might happen. Jesus is not saying that missions are bad or evangelism's bad or church planting's bad or any of the other examples that I just gave, not at all. Jesus is emphasizing that it's the prayers of those evangelists, it's the prayers of those missionaries, it's the prayers of those teachers and preachers and of every ordinary Christian who sits in every ordinary church in the world that catalyze and galvanize the coming of the kingdom of God. From Jesus' perspectives, your prayers actually change reality. Your prayers usher heaven into earth and I'm not sure we're convinced of this. Your father has willingly opened himself up to your influence. If you consider prayer to be the side effect of a loving relationship, this isn't a stretch. It's not hard to comprehend. But I think for so many of us, we're still stuck back on fundamental one or two that by the time we get to number four, it's throwing our theological perspective so far on its head that we just kind of let go and go, I don't even know how that could possibly work. I, I don't know. I'll just say three Hail Marys on the way to work and hope that that's good enough. When what's available to you and I is a warm and loving and connected and personal and really unique relationship, unique to you and God between the two of you. I think it makes sense why for many of us this is hard to comprehend. Unfortunately, we are so modern, we're so online, that we're very connected to the harshness of the human destruction that goes on all over the world, of the rampant spread of disease, of the death toll of war and disaster and famine and epidemics, these things are so normal to us, almost casual in the frequency with which we run across them in our news apps or on our Twitter feed or our Facebook pages, that we can't really imagine anything that we do making a meaningful difference. Most of us believe that everything that's going on around us is always going from bad to worse and that we have very little to do with it. Yes, we can help a person on the side of the road or we can take care of someone who's hungry or we can demonstrate a small kindness to somebody around us, but we don't really live every day with the mental idea, the perspective that we have agency in the events of the world. We don't think that's true, most of us. We think that we have to elect people if we wanna have any kind of agency. We have to get the right people in the right offices. We have to vote for the right things and that's the only way that we can really stick our hands into the fabric of the universe, but that's an upside down understanding. Jesus is saying, I've opened the kingdom of God to you. What's left? What else is there that you, that you would want to be involved in or interact with that's not affected by this? Everything around you is connected to God the creator, the eternal living God. So speak to him and things will happen. Things can change. Many of us have become far more fatalistic because we've been discipled by our culture to think that everything is just gonna be bad to the point that we have oftentimes trouble even connecting with relatively recent history. So here's an example of how different our mindset is today in 2023 than even the mindset of Jesus' people were, his peers when he was alive. In the Old Testament, there's a collection of writings, uh, the first five books that were all oral history, then a guy named Moses wrote them all down. In the first book, which what we call Genesis in our Christian Bible, there's a story of a guy named Noah. Now we think of Noah as like a cartoon 
or an anthropomorphic vegetable, if you've seen the VeggieTales version, right? Or a felt board guy who goes on a felt board arc. These are sort of our experiences with Noah. He feels like a character that's meant to teach us a principle, but we don't often think of him as a real man with real problems and real emotions who lived in a real world. That's different from Jesus' peers. Jesus referenced the man Noah in Matthew's biography of him. He says this in Matthew 24, 37. He says, for the day, excuse me, but as for the day or that day and hour, no one knows it. Jesus is talking about the end of time, so you have some context. Not even the angels in heaven know except the Father alone. Now catch what he says here. For just like the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. Jesus throws Noah out casually in conversation, and everybody around him goes, oh yeah, Noah. Noah has been dead for 1,200 years, and these people are not fatalistic, not jaded, and not discipled the way that we have been to the point that they can connect with a guy who's been dead for centuries and still feels like a peer to them. They can go, oh yeah, we're all Israelites, we're all God's people, we get what you're saying, Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to get in the weeds of explaining Noah's culture and his perspective and his language like I would have to do if I was gonna tell you about Jesus' world, which is a little bit farther back, but not a whole lot. Now church, take that idea, the idea of being intimately connected and familiar with a person who's been dead for 1,200 years and compare that to how hard it is for most of us to even relate to our grandparents. We just don't share experience the way that we used to. We don't have hope the way that we used to. We don't allow good and right things to pass down the way that they used to. When I heard my grandparents tell stories about the end of World War II, I thought, that sounds cool. I don't know, I wasn't there, I can't imagine that. Like the wars that I've lived through don't really end in any discernible way. We don't have D-Days like we used to. They just kinda keep going and things just get worse, and we install a new world leader, and he's worse than the last guy, even though he said he'd be better, and there's more war, and there's more slavery, and there's more exploitation. We've lived in this atmosphere where we've believed and been exposed to these things for so long that we can't be surprised that it's changed our hearts a little bit. The idea that you and I could actually make a difference in the world, it is totally counter to the way that our culture wants us and has trained us to believe and think. Our culture wants us to think the very best way we can make a difference is by trying to blaze a new trail, not by connecting back to the oldest possible person in history, God himself. Our culture wants us to believe that we have to reinvent the wheel, solve new problems, bring down some kind of utopia by human effort and ideals and politics and law, and it's not God's way. God's way is to go to him, and then he'll answer. He'll listen. He'll hear. He wants to be involved in those kinds of things. The world that we live in has changed us. I'll say it to you this way in summary. We live in sort of a perpetual cold war of ideas where our online presence constantly exposes us to a slow leak of intellectual and emotional sewage. And it's making a difference. It's changing us. Things are bleak, okay? And I'm not saying to you that Christians should just put on a false positivity, a happy face and act like everything's gonna be fine someday. Neither the Bible nor Jesus teach that Christians can never be unhappy. In fact, I'm trying to say the opposite. I'm trying to help you understand that we don't just have to choose the fatalism and we aren't just left with false positivity on the other side of the spectrum. We have another choice. We can go with Jesus and we don't have to put on a fake smile and we don't have to get up every morning and think, well, everything's gonna happen that's gonna happen and it doesn't matter and so I'm just gonna deal with it. I'm gonna spend my time reacting to my circumstances instead of working with God to potentially change them. We try to dress our fatalism up oftentimes in ideas that sound very Christian-like. We say things like God is in control or everything happens for a reason or God works all things for good, right? Which are our phrases that do come out of the Bible. But my friends, hear me when I say to you, if those kinds of ideas are actually pushing you further away from engaging in prayer with your heavenly father, then I don't care what book you pulled those phrases out of, they are not God's word and will for your life. 
They're not trying to teach you to get away from God because he's already got it handled and you need to just be quiet and stay in your corner and try hard. That's not the point. Those are supposed to bring comfort and peace to us in the midst of us wrestling with God over what's going to happen to our children and the people that we love and our church and the future of wherever it is that we call home. They're not an antidote to prayer. They're supposed to spur us on, but unfortunately for most of us, they become a band-aid that we slap on any problem anybody else has, whether it's in life group or a Bible study or somebody we bump into on a Sunday morning. We hand them a platitude so we can go home and go, well, I said, I said Christian words, so I did the right thing, right? God, aren't you proud of me? And we never pray. We don't contend. We don't bear that burden. We don't bring it to God, our Father who's near and loves us. We found ways to use even the language of the Bible to reinforce that life is just one giant pre-recorded TV special. And we all have a script and we just go through the motions and whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. Here's the choice that followers of Jesus get. They don't have to choose fatalism. They don't have to choose a false positivity. Oh, everything's gonna be great. Even though I'm miserable, Christians aren't allowed to frown or cry, so I'll just fake it. We don't have to choose either of those things. We get to follow Jesus and reject the fake positivity and reject the thinly veiled fatalism and instead take Jesus at his word, which seems to be in Luke 11, that when we pray, things happen. And when we don't pray, things don't happen. And I know that's a little bit slippery to grasp, so maybe if I say it to you like this, this will be helpful, okay? There are things that are going to happen that, if you pray, will not happen. And there are things that are not going to happen that, if you pray, will happen. When you pray, things happen. When you don't pray, things don't happen. Let me give you an example. Try to kind of dial us in here on what's going on. I know this is a challenging concept to grapple with, okay? Imagine for a minute here that you are me. You're 32 years old, you have one child, you're married, you have a very busy full life, you work, and you're trying to take care of your family at home, and you're trying to be involved in other stuff. And you wake up one morning, your alarm goes off at six o'clock because you don't have to be at work till nine. And so you're gonna get up and you're gonna spend 30 minutes in prayer. But you start to think about all the stuff that you have that day. And you start to tell yourself, man, I've got this huge meeting later tonight. I don't feel like I'm all the way ready for it. I really need to spend these extra 30 minutes getting my notes together. Or you think, gosh, tonight I've got to meet with that family. They're going through that awful thing and I'm gonna counsel them and they can't even meet till nine. And I'm supposed to be up at five tomorrow for a workout. And so I, I need to sleep in today. I gotta get as much sleep as I possibly can. Or you wake up and you go, man, I'm just, I'm just like not feeling it today. I don't want to pray. I don't care. I'm going to just hang out. I'll finish that movie that I fell asleep during the end of last night. You could pick any one of those things, okay? Your life may be going good. Your life may be going bad. Your life may be a big chaotic mess right now. I have no idea. But in this scenario, if you take the time to pray according to what Jesus is saying, ask God's kingdom to come. Ask his will to be done in your life and the lives of the people around you. Something's going to be different now. There's something that happens in eternity that God is willing to open himself to, that you would come to him and say, God, would you do this? And he'd go, yeah, let me consider that. I think we can make that happen, or no, that's not actually good because you can't see the whole picture. But there's an interaction with God that you would skip over if you never prayed. Now, what that means is if I get up and I decide I'm going to do 30 minutes on Netflix, or I'm going to just catch up on work, or I'm going to try to nap, sleep a little bit extra to make sure that I, I'm ready for the rest of my day, basically me taking my life into my own hands, each of those three examples, when I do that, what I'm deciding is, is that I just don't want anything to change. I'm not cursing myself to some sense of damnation. God's not going to go, you should have prayed today. Now I have to rip the earth in half because you didn't pray. Now I'm, I'm stuck with this decision I didn't want to make. Not at all. Not at all. But by choosing to get up and spend that time, whether it's in the morning or it's at lunch or it's four times a day when your alarm goes off or right before bed, when you come to God as your father 
every time that you do that, there is an interaction in eternity between you and him where something changes. Either his perspective and will changes, and I know that sounds scary. We're gonna go there next week. We're gonna dive deeply into the rest of the Bible and see how this is the way that prayer works. So just trust me for now and come back and I'll show you next week. Either his will and perspective changes or yours does. But something is different because of that interaction. You don't walk away from that time of prayer changed if you come to God as your father. If you come to God as a a very near at hand, close by, loving person that you're in relationship with. If you cherish him. If you believe that he's opened himself to your will. Most people who claim to follow Jesus don't really believe that this is true. And so for most of us, prayer often feels like an uncomfortable but necessary waste of time. Just to be blunt with you. I know that that's the case. It's not motivating for a lot of us. We don't really believe anything's going to change if we do or don't pray. And that's that thinly veiled fatalism at work for us. That's us believing what the world has taught us, that things are as bad as they're ever going to be and they're only going to get worse and we can't do anything about it. So why try? Why waste our time? Or we don't want to take a break from trying to force our lives to change with all the positive thoughts and the vision boards and the manifesting that the world teaches us is the way into the good life. And so we just chug along on our own kind of um, reservoir of self-discipline until that runs out. For most of us, it lasts a week or a day or even a few hours. And then suddenly life slaps that fake smile off of our face and we're right back where we were that morning. Prayer is fundamentally totally different from that. Prayer is not an attempt on your part or my part to use our spiritual muscles to try to change ourselves. Prayer is coming to God in humility and opening ourselves to his will and saying, God, I want your will to be done. I love you, I know you, I know your word. From my perspective, these would be good things for you to consider. And then he does. He doesn't always do all of them and he shouldn't. But we get to have that interactive relationship with him and that's something that nothing else can offer you. Your work, your family, your sense of achievement, your bank account, another religion, nothing can get you personally connected to God in a way where you begin to interact together on that level. Praying, may your kingdom come and may your will be done, sure, it can feel rote. Maybe it feels meaningless to some of us because we go, gosh, isn't that gonna happen already? But according to Jesus, it is so necessary for us to participate in that he includes it in his model prayer for his disciples. Now, I've used three quotes so far today and none of them have been from Dallas Willard. So I think I've earned one. What do you guys think? That's the new rule. I'm not allowed to quote Dallas Willard until I do uh, three other quotes. That's not really the rule. Uh, But I want you to take a look at this quote. Maybe this will help this idea land for you of what's going on when we pray, okay? Dallas says this. He says, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. I mean, that sentence, you could just take that sentence by itself, write it on something and just think about it all week. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that God is going through the motions with you? Is he being fake back to you in the same way that maybe you're being fake with him? Dallas says no. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he is only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter, a ghost that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. Just let that sit on you for a second. 
you're set free, my friends. Like whatever the little cell is that you've been locked in when it comes to prayer, whoever scared you or scarred you all those years ago that you couldn't pray that way or that wasn't formal enough language or we don't really say those kind of things to God or we don't really say those kind of things in public, maybe no one ever even taught you. Maybe your parents or a bad life group or a college Bible study discipled and showed you by example that you could not afford to open yourself up to God. It's a lie. It's a lie and it's the absolute best way to keep you exactly where you are right now today, spiritually, forever. No change. All the same problems that you have. All the same weights on your heart and mind. All the same circumstances that you're dwelling in. Choosing not to pray and bring those to God is choosing to be a fatalist. Fatalism is not moved forward by prayer. We don't participate in this idea that God's going to just do whatever he wants to do. When we choose to pray, we push against that and we say, God, we love you. You've asked us to do this. You've commanded us to come to you and share our perspectives. Now, church, can I open the hood for you on that and explain all the ins and outs and turn it into a recipe or a formula? No, God doesn't work that way. But what I can tell you is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, your Savior, the Messiah, the man who bore your sins and took them to the cross, said, when you pray, say to God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. He told his disciples, his apprentices, when you speak to God, ask him to do what you think he should be doing. As your character is shaped, as you grow, the Apostle Paul says in one of his epistles to the early churches that as we look upon God with the veil of sin removed, we're transformed into Christ's character. Like as we change, as we grow, our prayers become more and more in line with what God was gonna do anyway. But we are also partners of his. The way the New Testament lays out the role of the Holy Spirit is not that we suddenly become possessed by a good ghost instead of a bad ghost and the good ghost makes us a robot for God and then at the end of our lives we die and and I don't know what we do in heaven. More robot stuff probably in that scenario. That's not at all the picture the Bible paints. The Bible paints a picture of us going alongside the Spirit in the same way that Jesus' apprentices walked alongside him when he was on the earth in his physical body. It's a partnership. It's a mutuality. That does not mean that we carry the same weight or responsibility as God at all. The most helpful way that I can probably explain that to you is the principle that we have in our modern lives of bringing your child to work sometimes. That's what God wants to do with us. You don't bring your eight-year-old to work because you could really use her perspective on this big project. Do you understand what I'm saying? You don't need that. However, once in a while, she may say, Dad, it seems like this line is crooked, or these numbers don't add up, or that person was mean to you and they shouldn't have been. And you might go, that is a good point. I appreciate hearing that from you. Or you might say, you know what, you're right, and that's what I was going to do anyway, but let me talk to you about it. Let me me pull the curtain back a little bit for you here and help you understand why we do this the way that we do and what it's like to be a person like me and what my job is like in this world that I inhabit. That's the perspective of God, your Father, with you. He does not need your help but he's opened himself to it. So why would you waste that? He won't. He's not gonna get mad if you ask for the wrong stuff or Jesus wouldn't have given people this sort of carte blanche approach to bring their requests to God. He wants to hear from you. Again, either something will change in eternity or you will change from your exposure to him. Both are good and right and both work for his glory and the coming of the kingdom of God. When you pray, you are speaking to your father who is near to you whom you can cherish with joy and gratitude and worship. The Father who loves you has made himself available to you. And understand me, please, he is not bound to your influence by some ancient law of the universe. I don't know if you guys have ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, 
But there's this part in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the Aslan the Lion gets up on the stone table where the deep magic was written from years before. And he makes this sacrifice that the witch didn't know about and the table cracks. Well, the witch tries to use the deep magic against him. In a way, it's a picture of Satan tempting Jesus for 40 days in the desert where Satan's throwing scripture at Jesus and Jesus is going, "Uh uh-uh, don't try to use my father's words against me. Okay, there's this moment where in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the stone table breaks and Aslan says to the witch, he roars at her, do not quote the deep magic to me. And I just, I'm trying to help you understand a little bit here that when we go to God, it's not that he's our slave. Okay, there's not some older ancient law or rule in place that requires him to do what we want and that matters because he wants to open himself to you. He's not required. He's not obligated. He doesn't have to do it. There's no deep magic to quote to God that casts a spell on him and makes him do what you want because he loves you. You can see how these fundamentals build on each other. Because he loves you, he wants to open himself to you and to your influence. So we have to let ourselves out of the cage. We have to stop limiting our own influence in an attempt to not mess up God's plans or not, I don't know, impose on him or frankly because we don't believe it would make a difference. Many of us, I think, feel locked in a cell that God did not put us in. And so I would ask you, have you given yourself permission to speak to God honestly? Because Jesus gave you that permission. You don't need anybody else's permission doesn't matter who it makes uncomfortable. You're allowed to go to God directly. Jesus says that you ought to do that, that anything less than that is not full participation in your relationship. Have you allowed yourself to take Jesus at his word, to speak to God the way that Jesus did? Jesus is not sharing in Luke 11 a super secret sneak peek at the way that only he and the God the Father communicate that is reserved for them alone. In Luke 11, Jesus is teaching a group of men who are the most ordinary, and you could argue even backwards guys ever, They are perfectly exemplary of you and I. They represent us exactly. They know a lot less about science than many of us do. They have way less education than we do. He's teaching simple, ordinary men like that to pray and to expect the kingdom of God to come and answer their calls. This is prayer. This is every prayer that we pray. Even when you're not speaking out loud, this is the result of you letting your heart cry out to God. You, a person saved by Jesus, working together with the Holy Spirit to commune with your Father, you can bend the fabric of reality because you've come close to God, to be with him, to know him, and to tell him what is heavy on you. So that's the fourth and last fundamental of prayer that comes to us from Jesus, our rabbi. I want to quickly review with you, then I'm going to tell you where we're going to go next week, and we're going to finish together with a short practice to wrap up our time. So again, the four fundamentals of prayer. In church, I'm, I'm arguing as best I know how that these are not fundamentals that only come into play once in a while, but this is the inroad, this is the off-ramp from your busy life into communion with God in prayer every time you pray. You don't have to recite these things, you don't have to memorize them, but I want these concepts and principles to become second nature. In the same way that you recognize the voice of a loved one on the phone without them having to identify themselves, in the same way that you probably know your spouse's handwriting forward and back, in the same way that that the smell of the perfume or cologne that your spouse wears, or there's just different kind of sensory things that we hold in in our experience that tell us I'm safe, I'm home, I'm with someone who loves me. These are those principles when it comes to God our Father. Without these in play, I truly believe that we will eventually revert to formal, cold, distant, ritualistic recitation. And we won't actually pray and communicate with our Father who loves us. God is your Father. He is. Your Father is within your reach. He is. Cherishing your Father is the point. It's the only point. And the good news for you and I, the the miracle in all of this, is that he has opened himself up 
to your influence, that should you choose to become a person who engages in prayer with God, you can change the world. You'll never know if you did, because that's not the point. The point is to be with God and enjoy him, but as you do that and are honest with him, he will bend his ear to you, and something will change. So if you will, I want you to look back at Luke 11 one last time. I want to show you where we're going to go next week. Okay? We're going to wrap up Jesus' model prayer here in one week next week. Um, and I want you to notice, I have it for you in the slide, the emphasis that Jesus makes starting in verse 3 toward plural pronouns. So the first, first two, we talked about that. That's kind of the individual element of how do you learn to pray and come into prayer, those four fundamentals that I shared with you. Beginning next week, we're going to look at the, the plural words that Jesus uses, and we're going to see a model for intercession, for how we pray for ourselves, for our churches, for our families. Jesus says this beginning in verse 2 of Luke 11. When you pray, say, Father, may your name be honored and may your kingdom come. Now notice this language. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and do not lead us into temptation. With the fundamentals in place, Jesus now moves his apprentices into a model prayer of intercession, or what we would call prayer for one another, if you're not familiar with that word. Jesus' example teaches us that the prayers of those who follow him normally and regularly make appeals on behalf of others to God the Father. So next week, we're going to dive deeply into how prayer for others works based on Jesus' teaching in Luke 11, 3 through 4. We're going to look at a few helpful instances of intercession, examples from the scriptures, Old and New Testament. And we'll revisit the idea, finally, that God is our Father. And if we can do all of that in 40 minutes, then that'll be it for prayer for us next week. If not, we'll do one more week, first week of March, but I think we're going to be able to be done with this series once and for all at that point. So last thing, here's what we're going to do to wrap up today, okay? This series is about practicing prayer, not just learning about prayer. So I want to give you an opportunity to put what we're discussing here into practice. Nobody's going to watch you. Nobody's going to check and see if you do this or not. Okay, this is not a test to pass. This is an opportunity. It's just a little bit of space that I'm going to open up for you. You can do nothing with it. You can daydream, nap, look at your phone. That's up between you and God. It's up to you. Not to make you feel bad, but I'm not going to monitor you. But if you want to, you can take advantage of these five minutes. Tyler's going to just play on his guitar for us. No lyrics, just a little bit of music. You can take advantage of these five minutes, and you can consider these four fundamentals of prayer. Maybe you haven't done that. Maybe your life is so full to the brim, so packed out to the gills, that you haven't actually stopped to think about the practical application in your own life of these fundamentals. We're going to leave the fundamentals on the screen while Tyler plays for you. When he's done, the band will come up. They'll participate in worship like we always do. We'll end with a couple songs. I have a blessing that I'll read over you before we dismiss this morning. But while we do this, I'm going to just invite you to allow your mind and your heart to press into God's presence because he's here. Tell him the truth and listen to him closely. Some of you may even sense as we pray that God would like you to get up and go to somebody else in the room, a spouse, somebody in your life group, a friend, a deacon, a volunteer, your life group leader, whatever, and pray for them. Feel free to do that if you'd like to do that. That's totally allowed. We don't all just have to stay in our, our little cubicles for this exercise. And last thing, if you would like to be prayed for, maybe there's something that's been on your heart, you've been burdened, uh, a handful of our elders are going to be available to do that with you. So I'm going to be down here, front left, Mike Gottenweller's going to come, front right, Russ Mabry's going to stand in the back this morning, so if you'd prefer not to have everybody see you, he'll be back there when we move in just a minute. And we're just here. This is, this is as casual as you want it to be. We're available. We love you guys. We don't always take opportunities to do this kind of thing. So before we dive in, okay, one last quote to prime the pump for you, just to get your attention here. This is Andrew Murray, about 150 years ago, his book, With Christ in the School of Prayer, he says this, who can say 
what power a church could develop and exercise if it gave itself to the work of prayer day and night. For what, Andrew Murray? Well, for the coming of the kingdom, for God's power on his servants, and to his word for the glorifying of God in the salvation of souls. What if that was possible? I think it is. So Tyler, go ahead and start the music. Everybody else, you got about five minutes. Go to God. He's here. He loves you.